0: So I went into the store with my older stepbrother and uh, we walked in and I was probably maybe I don't know 8th grade ninth grade I don't remember when it was but we go into the store and he had a jacket on my older stepbrother had lots of pockets in it and we proceeded to go into the store and uh, he put five cans of Copenhagen chewing tobacco inside his coat. And then we both walked out of the convenience store. I didn't say anything. I could have said something. I didn't. There's Probably lots I can unpack with that. But let's just say I didn't say anything. We got caught almost immediately. I think I just have a guilty look on my face all the time. Now, look, I'm not the guy that put him in my jacket, but I was kind of guilty by association. Uh, now, I didn't commit the crime, but I was a bit of an accomplice. My sin was omission. I didn't say something when, when I should have said something. And that was kind of a big lesson. Uh, and I still actually remember what I felt that day, being caught, kind of have to explain it to mom and dad, and... Uh, Just felt real low. You feel that shame, and maybe, maybe some of you have been there. Now, I wish I could say that's the only mistake I ever made in my life. Fortunately, that wouldn't be true. I've made lots of mistakes, and I've realized how important it is in life to own mistakes. Things that either I've not done or things that I have done. Own it. Don't make an excuse for it. Don't say, well, I'm not perfect. Nobody believes that anyway. Things that you've done wrong and you, you own it. That's what we're going to be leaning into today. And I, and I know that's maybe not the most popular topic to, to, to think about, but we're in a series called Rhythms, and I think you're going to see how important that is in the life of every Christ follower to own up to what we've done. We need to realize that you and I, we're sinners saved by an amazing Father God, who pulled out all those stops for us. We are sinners, though, and we need to recognize that. And confession is part of the daily rhythm and routine of every Christ follower. You think about confession. We don't really do that anymore. I mean, unless you're in a courtroom, right, where else else do you confess? You confess to a crime or whatever. Maybe at work you have to confess something. Maybe at school you have to tell your teacher, no, I actually didn't do the homework. No, I don't have a dog, and it didn't, you know, that's what we used to say back in the day, the dog ate the homework. Teacher never really found out if you had a dog or not. But confession is not something that that we we normally have in in everyday life. In, In marketplace, you're not seeing you know, confessional booths. Like if you go to some older, say more liturgical churches, like Catholic church buildings, in fact, Jackie and I had a chance a couple years ago to go see the Notre Dame before it had the big fire. So glad we did that. Beautiful building, very gothic, very cool. But when, when you look around the sides of the gathering area, the sanctuary, you had these little rooms. And these little rooms, maybe you've seen, seen them on television or whatever, but they really do exist. And, and apparently at certain times of the day, Uh, The priest, or I guess they have a lay priest that will do that too, but they'll kind of sit in one part of the little booth, and there's like a little screen. These really exist. I saw them. And then uh, you'd go in, and certain times you would confess your sin to the priest. It was part of their daily, normal worship routine. You think about us now in sort of the Protestant, you know, more progressive churches or whatever. We don't really have those, but there's something to be learned about the art of confession. And we need to have that in our daily rhythm. No, we may not need to bring back the booths on the side of the auditorium. But that needs to be a daily practice. And I love the fact that they still have that. In fact, if you, if you ever do any kind of liturgical prayer, which sometimes I do, which is kind of scripted prayer, one of the first things you do, and I've sent some of you this app. So if you want that app, I'll send it to you. But one of the first things you do is you confess your sin. And you start with, Father, I... I've sinned. I've sinned with the things that I've done and the things that I haven't done. And that's almost how you begin the entire dialogue with God. You start at ground zero, recognizing you've got a sin issue and you need a Savior. You still do. Sometimes people look at, at the gospel, the gospel good news, and they think, well, that's elementary. That's what we learned when I was a kid. But now that I'm an adult, you know, I'm, I'm way past that. No, 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 no. Gospel is for you every day. When you wake up tomorrow, you need Gospel. You need the gospel good news in your day tomorrow. You're going to need it this afternoon. It's not some elementary thing that we just move past. The gospel good news says you are a sinner but you're loved by an amazing Savior. That is our ground zero. That's why it's so important for us in this series to talk about this. Rhythms. We call this series rhythms. Why do we call it rhythms? Often when you think about rhythms, you're thinking about music. You're thinking about what the beat of music. And certainly that's true. But There's a lot of things in life that have rhythms. If you think about it, you go to the ocean, and what are you seeing? In and out of the waves. And sometimes they come farther, depending on whether the tide's in or out. There's a rhythm to that. There's a rhythm to the rainy season and the sunny season. There's a rhythm to when you get up and when you lay down, right? The light and the dark. There are rhythms all around us. And there's even rhythms in us. Think about the rhythms in you. Do you know that your body kind of emits like like waves? There's waves of energy, and your heart has a pretty important rhythm. In fact, if your heart gets out of that rhythm, that's a bad thing. Your heart needs to... What is that? It's a rhythm. And so when we think about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, we have rhythms that the church has been practicing not for 50 years, not for 100 years, for thousands of years. These rhythms matter, and they build our spiritual muscle. They build us, help us mature in the faith, that we would, would be able to mature in Christ. In this series, in this series we've been unpacking several rhythms. So uh, if, if I think we're, this is week four, week three. <laughs> I should have learned that. Uh, the preacher should know that. But we've been in this series for a couple weeks, and we started it out with, with one of our elders, John. And he talked about the importance of getting the Scripture into you. And he, he spoke about how learning the Scripture is like a dog with the bone. We, we, they, we cherish that bone. And so we, we, we treasure Scripture and bring it into our hearts. Thy word that I've hidden my heart that I might not sin against you is what David said. There are Scriptures that I've memorized that have been huge in my life. Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is. Anybody? Good. The staff, our church staff a couple years ago memorized this one. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will grant you the desires of your heart. These are these are moments where we, we're like a dog with the bone. We take those and cherish them. So so Jonathan encouraged us in that first rhythm, scripture, scripture, scripture. Read, read, read. You know, this morning I spent about a half hour to 45 minutes just reading the scriptures. I'm the preacher. I already know this stuff. Why would I need to read it? It's a rhythm that I've built into my life. So it's not just the preachers out there. We need this rhythm in our life. In fact, if I miss that rhythm, I feel weird. I feel like I've lost something. I've missed something. So these rhythms become important. In week two, Bob Sloan did a great job talking about prayer and that prayer flows out of our worship. When we, when we bow down, when we put our knees on the ground, we're worshiping and we're saying, he must increase and I must decrease. Worship is where it begins. And prayer is this moment where we get to converse with God. Yes, you could say, well, Ben, doesn't he already know what I'm going to say? Yep, do it anyway, because he loves you. He wants this communication with you. You know, the the scriptures tell us there's some things that can only happen with prayer. How much are you praying? One of the, the scriptures I read this morning talked about lifting holy hands up in prayer. And I thought to myself, when was the last time I actually physically did that? But Paul writes to Timothy in some of the pastoral letters. Hey, when you train up people, Paul uh, or or Timothy, this is Paul speaking. When you train up people, I want I want everywhere people lifting up holy hands in prayer, praying for those in, in in authority, praying for those in leadership, praying for each other, lifting them up. So actually, this week I did a little of that. I was thinking about some 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 families that are really going through some tough stuff. And you know what I did? It was almost like I physically lifted them up to the Lord, and I prayed for them. Some people with health issues, and I just said, Lord, this may seem silly but I'm just going to lift them up to you. Lifting holy hands in prayer. Pray, pray, pray. That was week two. Week three, Andrew last week talked about Sabbath. This is week four. Okay, I figured it out now. So (laughs) it took me that long. See, you thought I wouldn't figure it out. Last week, Andrew talked about Sabbath. And Sabbath is pulling away from our normal work. It's built into creation. Physical creation has this built in that there is times we pull away from, from work. Rest is crucial. And I've heard it said in many different contexts, but they say a good part of discipleship, 70-75% of discipleship, walking with Jesus, is a good night's rest. Think of how many bad decisions we've made when we've been tired. I know that seems crazy. Get sleep. It helps your spiritual life. And take a day off. You know, it shouldn't be something that your family's having to push you to take a day off. You set it into your rhythm. So we talked about Sabbath, and today we're leaning into this idea of confession, of of forgiveness, of the idea of repentance, and the art of the apology. And so I'm so thankful that you joined us. I'm Pastor Ben. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. I know there's some folks joining us online. We see you. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We are gathered as one church on the first day of the week. Why do we do that? I say this often, because Jesus of Nazareth, A couple thousand years ago, was born in a miraculous way, lived a perfect life, did amazing things, suffered on a Roman cross, died. But three days later on a Sunday, that tomb was empty and he rose from the dead and changed human history. And many of us in this room changed our hearts forever. That's why we gather on Sunday. So in that moment, let's pray and lean into this idea of confession today. Father, we come before you as one church family. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Father, we know that if we delight ourselves in you, you grant us the desires of our heart, Father, because you mold us into the, to your people. So, Father, help us to lean into confession, and not just to say we're sorry, but, Father, to really see some life-changing repentance, changing of direction, becoming more and more in step with your Holy Spirit by the power of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Art of the Apology. So what is, what is confession anyway? I think the idea is confession. It may be sort of a, an odd term. We don't use it much except for maybe legal circles anymore today. But there's kind of two angles you can take on the whole word confession. The first one is what we've been talking about. And that's the, you've made a mistake and so you're going to own it. You're going to say I'm, I made a mistake. I'm owning my sin. That's, so you're, you're basically it's an apology. You're saying, you're saying sorry for something that you did right? Or, or failed to do, right? We've covered that already. So that's the first way we could take it. Another way we could take it would be the idea, it's really kind of more of the English word confess, which is to agree with. So there's a sense also, especially in the early church, they would develop what we would call some of their creeds and belief statements, and they would they would kind of use that as their rallying cry. In fact, I know you know some of these. Some of you that maybe grew up in Catholic churches, you know the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven, make of earth. Jesus Christ, only son. Right? You, you learned some of that, right? You learned those creeds. And I, I probably hashed it a little bit. But you probably heard some of those. Are, that's what they call they would be, make the good confession. Right? Making the confession. In fact, even Peter, right, made the good confession to Jesus. One time he said, well, who do people say that I am? Right? So in that sense, Peter wasn't apologizing for a sin. He was actually confessing, agreeing with Right? So there's two ways you can take this word for our purposes today. Let's look at that first meaning, which is the idea, again, of acknowledging our sin and our mistakes. It's, it's, it's in spiritual conversation. It's kind of like the idea of confronting the brutal facts. Confronting it. Really saying, okay, i got to own this. I made the mistake. And this is true in our spiritual life. It's true in marital life. It's true in family life. It's true in work life. Sometimes there's power in you just owning it. Think about this. Think about how work would be different if people, when they made a mistake, owned it right away. Instead of trying to cover it up or play this weird game of triangulation or talk to this person or somehow muddy up the water so that you can't really tell where the mistake happened. What if that happened in your home life where you just agreed, yeah, I screwed up? Now, here's the deal. If you're married, your spouse knows. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. You could try to cover it up, but I got a horrible poker face. I screw up, she knows. So that's just the way it's going to be. But owning it, seeing, confronting the brutal flax that I messed up. We need to learn this phrase. We need to learn as a church family because there's things we need to apologize as a church. And there are things that we need to learn individually. We have sinned. Let me, let me hear you say that. We have sinned. Let's let that sit for a bit. There are things as a church that we have not spoken up for. There are things that we have not said. There are times where we've made decisions. And sometimes we have to admit we have sinned. We've gotten off kilter. And and Jesus have mercy on us. But we also have that problem individually. So here's another take on that phrase. Now we're going to learn a different one. And I want you to keep this with you. I have sinned. Let me hear it now. I have sinned. Yes, you did. I, ha- I have sinned. Now, there are seven pretty key moments in Scripture where people have said those three words. And this is actually from a sermon that I stole. I'm not stole. I'm kind of re- I'm modernizing it. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. I'm confessing. But there's a, <laughs> there's a sermon that was preached on January eighteenth, eighteen 1857. In London, England, by a little known preacher, last name of Spurgeon. You may have heard of him. And he preached on this idea of I have sinned. And he looked at some characters in Scripture where they had to say some powerful words, but some of them didn't really mean it. Let's lean in. If you've got a Bible or a device handy, I encourage you to find the first one, which is in Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Because sometimes people say, I'm sorry or I've sinned but they don't really mean it. You ever ever had that happen in your life? You know, maybe it was a sibling or something, and, you know, your mom's saying, or your dad's saying, you better apologize, and so what do you do? I'm sorry, but you didn't really mean it. There are times where we can even play this game with God. where We say, I'm sorry, but maybe you're just sorry because you got caught, but you're not really sorry. There's no real repentance going on. You just want to get past this awkward moment and move on. I have sinned. Seven people we'll look at. The first one is Pharaoh. What do we know about Pharaoh? Pharaoh and Moses, they were at odds. This is like kingdom of God versus the empires of the world. And Moses is, is, is in this conflict. God wants him to get the people out of, out of slavery in Egypt. It's a powerful moan of freedom and liberty. But before that had to happen, there was this conflict between Moses and the Pharaoh. And the scriptures say at one point, Pharaoh kind of had enough. And he said these words in Exodus chapter nine, verse twenty-seven. What have we, we already learned, I have sinned. He says that to Moses, and so Moses and Aaron they do their thing. They pray to God, and that plague you know, got some relief from that. What does Pharaoh do right after that? He's back at it. The scriptures say during that whole conflict, sometimes hard, Pharaoh would just harden his own heart. Like he just didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And you think about how many people suffered. Have you ever thought about that? How many people suffered because of the stubbornness of one dude? A lot of suffering there. And so, scriptures tell us that he he said, I have sinned. So Moses, Aaron, go do your thing, and uh, we'll be good. Obviously, you know that that was not real, and it wasn't legit. He had hardened his heart. He was just waiting for them to kind of fix it, and then by the time they get out to the wilderness, he's already getting his army to go chase them down. And he thought he had them. Of course, then there was that whole Red Sea thing. And that was tough. Lost a whole army to that. Again, once again, the decisions of one dude killed a lot of people. Hardened his heart. That's a, I have sinned, but that's a hard heart. We don't want to repeat that, right? We don't, wanna, we don't want our hearts to be there. We don't want to be so calloused. And flippant with that. So here's another one. Balaam. You may not remember Balaam. Balaam was this pagan seer back when when Israel was about to enter the Promised Land. They, they finally are almost there. Moses can't go with them. There's a lot to that story. But uh, so they're ready, and there's this king that sees all these people named Balak, and he's you know what? I don't like these people. I've heard about them, you know, and I want to get rid of them. So he asked this this pagan priest, if you will, to curse the people of God. And this pagan priest had to get some convincing, and he finally, you know, prays, and it's interesting that God speaks to him. He's not even an Israelite. He's like, not the right tribe, not the right race, nothing. God speaks to him and says, go do this thing, but do exactly what I tell you. So, finally, Balaam agrees, but somehow on the way, something must have changed in his heart. Because then we have this little interaction with this stubborn donkey. Uh, That was his mode of transportation. Thank the Lord we have cars now. But this donkey had this confrontation with Balaam, and really the donkey kind of saved his life. And God shows up and says, you know, it's a good thing that donkey took you down, because I was going to wipe you out. And he said, I want you to do what I told you to do. Somehow, in the mountaintop experience with God, and on that journey, I think Balaam's heart started to get a little. He's like, I could make some money off this thing. In fact, they were offering lots of money. If you read the story, I could could do pretty well. And then maybe I'll give a little blessing here and there. But God said, no, I want you to do exactly what I tell you to do. And so here's a moment where you've got this guy that said, okay, Lord, I'm sorry, I sinned. But in that case, you have this sort of double-mindedness to him. And we don't want to be like that, right? Sometimes scripture is helpful because it gives us examples of what not to do. We don't want to be double-minded. In the New Testament, James will write about this double-mindedness problem. he said, hey, don't be praying with a bunch of doubts, like praying to God, and they're like, well, I don't really think he's gonna come through. Let's not pray that way. Let's pray and trust that God can do it. We don't want to be double-minded like that. Here's another one: Saul. Who's Saul? King, first first king of Israel. You know, they, they wanted a king. And they were warned about it. The prophet Samuel warned about it. They wanted a king anyway. What did they say? Everybody else has one. We want one. And Samuel's like, okay, but it's going to cost you. So so he becomes king. And then through a series of events, and we don't have time to unpack all of that, things go sideways in Saul's kingdom. He makes some really bad decisions. God raises up David, who's going to come next. And Saul doesn't like it. In fact, Saul, on several occasions, throws dinner parties, and then he starts throwing spears at him. Can you imagine going to a dinner party if someone invites you over? And then at some point, you got to watch out for flying weapons. This happened with David. And at some point, David's on the run. Saul's after him. Uh, multiple times this happens. And, and the deal is David could have killed him several times. And one of those times, he confronts Saul. And this is, if you've got a Bible handy, this is this is now in, in uh, uh Chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And he confronts Saul and says, you know, Saul, I could have killed you, but I, I'm not going to do that. You're anointed by God. I'm not going to do that. And what does Saul tell him? Oh, David, you're much more righteous than I. I have, you know what now, I have sinned. All right, did, did, he, did he continue that beautiful journey of repentance? Did he continue that wonderful journey of forgiveness and turning another leaf and really, really making life change? No. He keeps pursuing David and loses the kingdom. That's a good example of something we shouldn't follow. That's an insincere, I have sinned. Let's talk about another one, Achan. You may not remember Achan. When God's people were were, were marching through, now there's a lot to unpack here, I realize. Exodus is a hard book, and Judges is a hard book. Joshua is a hard book. Some of these things are difficult. But in that conquest, right, finally Israel's going to kind of conquest the area, and that's going to be their new place. They get to, I think it's Jericho, and Achan and his family decide they're going to, God told them, hey, destroy everything. Again, there's a lot to unpack there, I realize that. God told them to, to destroy everything, don't, you know, don't keep anything. What does Achan do? He decides, well, these gold blooms. I don't even know if that's what it was. I'm, I'm probably mixing up like Time frames now. But this gold looks pretty good. I don't know if it gold. It's some treasure. And he buries it under his tent. Somehow that turns everything sideways. They start losing battles. Joshua's like, what's going on? We just, we had everything was going great. We were on our way. And you know, basically, God says, no, there's sin in the camp, buddy. Now, does Achan come forward and say, It's me? Do, do we find that in scripture? What happens? You know what happens? They have to go investigate. And they're asking, and finally they figured out it's Achan. And even after they find out it's Achan, it's not like he's like, well, here it is. They have to confront him. He's like, okay, here we go. And God had to punish him. But Achan got caught. He didn't offer that he'd done something wrong. And he tells Joshua, you ready for the phrase? I have sinned. That's what he tells Joshua. I have sinned against the Lord. But that was a moment where, I don't know, he got caught. How, again, here, here's a situation with, I don't know about this guy. He got caught. He didn't own it. Did real repentance happen there? God had to judge him. I could talk more. What about Judas? Judas wanted Jesus to move forward. He wanted to get this kingdom going. And so he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll kind of take it in my own hands and I'll get some confrontation going with the religious leaders in a quiet place. And so he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then things unravel fast and Judas is cut to the heart and he is in a moment of despair and he goes to those religious leaders and he said, I'm, I have sinned. We know that phrase, I have sinned. Take the money back. And what do they do? They toss them aside. And we, we know what happened, right? He said, I have sinned, but he let that get to him. He never sought out the Christian community again. He didn't go back to Peter and say, man, I really, it was me. He, he, he could have sought out Christian community. He could, have, he could have got before the Lord, but he let despair darken his heart. And you know what he did a few days later? He took his own life. He said, I have sinned, but he let that get to him. See, when we say we have sinned, God doesn't want to just shame us or have us in a state of despair. He wants to move us forward. That prodigal son moment where Jesus tells a story and this dad comes running after him. He wants to restore us. Job. What happens in Job? You know the story. Rough deal. Everything's taken away from Job. His wife tells him to curse God and die. Kind of a rough deal there. And and Job is kind of one of those interesting characters, right? Because if you think about it, when you you tell someone about the the wisdom that Scripture has, a good place you could take them to is Proverbs. And we say this often sometimes that Proverbs is like how 80 to 90% of life works, right? Do your work, save money, don't kill anybody. Uh, you know, it's basic rules for life. If you want to use kind of an instruction manual, Proverbs is about 80 to 90 percent of how life works. If you want to know how it works, that's pretty much there. But then there's those exceptions. And here's Joe who's done all that. He's, he's lived the Proverbs life, and yet there are other circumstances, other things that God wanted to do. And we get, we get a lot of chapters in the, in the story of Joe, but toward the end, He's having interactions with his friends, and they kind of give him some bad advice. They're basically saying, well, you probably did something wrong, Job, because God wouldn't punish you. Because, you know, that's, that's how God works, you know. You've got to do the right thing, and then he'll, be, he'll, he'll love you. They had a whole messed up theology, but at the end, God finally answers Job. He says, hey, Job, how are you? Were you there when I fashioned the planets? Were you there when I figured out how the sea creatures are supposed to work and interact? Were you, were you there? And Obviously, these are all questions that Job can't answer. And at some point, he's like, you're God in heaven. I'm here. I'm going to shut my mouth. And he tells, he tells the Lord this phrase we already know now. I have sinned. And his sin there was just not trusting God's story. He didn't trust him. It got, it got difficult. He was, he was waffling in that. But he said, I have sinned. I realize that I've spoken where I oughtn't have spoke. Let me listen to you. And God honors him in that moment of humility. The prodigal son. I think this story should not be called the prodigal son. I think it should be called the extravagant dad. Because what happens in the story, the real star of the story is the dad that owns all the property and he's the farmer and he's got all the family and everything and he's the guy that goes running after his son. Look, that prodigal son story is interesting. But you got a young son and he wants to blow all the money on doing whatever he wanted to do. He didn't want to work in dad's fields anymore and he goes off, you know this story. He spends all he has and then he ends up in this smelly situation where he's having to feed pigs which as a Jewish person, that's like insult to injury. And he couldn't really eat. The, the, I don't know who he's working for, but it's pretty harsh that the people that he was working for wouldn't even let him eat any of the, the stuff that the pigs are eating. But he's having this rough moment. He finally realized, you know what, I'm going to go back to dad, and I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm going I'm to re- rehearse a story. And he rehearses this over and over on his way home. I'm, I'm not worthy to be your son. You, you know the story. I'm not worthy. Uh, let me just be, I'd be better off at home, even if I were just a slave. He has it all planned out. And before he can even get close to home, Daddy-O is running after him, ready to give him a big old bear hug and a new robe, and and, and let's have a big feast. He didn't even get his speech out. He couldn't even get it out. The dad already hugged him up, and he's like, actually, I had a speech I was going to give you. doesn't even allow him to happen. That story is about God's love. But look, that kid smelled bad. Have you ever been around pigs? They stink. Bad. And you eat bacon. Think about that. Think about that. It might change your opinion if you had to go. But he, the father doesn't come to him and say, well, man, you need to go, first of all, go wash up, you stink. And then put on this nice robe. What does he do? Bear hug it. Bear hug it out. Right there in the field. How undignified of that dad. Hugs him. He smells bad. All that shame. And what does the son, come on, you know this phrase now. What does the son tell the dad? I have sinned. And in that moment, he, he gets embraced by the father. Right? Isn't that a great metaphor, a story for us? It's our story. In our mess, the scriptures tell us that while we were yet in the muck of our sin, Christ died for us, he would do anything. That's the kind of love he had. That's a scandalous love. And he wraps us in his arms. And you see how when we say, hey, I have sinned, we own it, we're humble, we get the bear hug. Come on in here. Save your speech for another time. I don't need to hear it. Big old, big old bear hug. So I got to ask the question which sinner are you today? I went through seven. There's probably more we could talk about in Scripture, but they are seven people. Who said, I have sinned, some of them meant it, some of them didn't. Who are you in this story? Are you the calloused, hardened sinner that you've made so many justifications for your sin? You don't even know what sin is anymore. Are you that, are you at that spot? Are you someone who's just going through the motions? Saying what you gotta say in the moment? Are you someone that got caught? And now you have to wrestle with: Am I really sorry? Do I wanna see a change? Do I really want to repent? See, these words that we talk about, uh, repentance and confession and and apology, these are all in that space of how do we become the whole people that God has called us to be? And we have to own our sin. It's not someone else's fault. It's not a blame game. We own it. But we don't just own it to wallow in it. We own it so we can move forward. God loves us way too much to let us be stuck in that pig pen forever. Yes, he gets us a big bear hug when we smell bad, but he would like us to eventually change into some nicer clothes. You see what I'm saying? I know I'm pressing that metaphor. But the idea is he, wants, he loves us too much to want us to stay there. He wants us to live fully surrendered, and that's gonna take a process. That's gonna take what we call in theological terms, sanctification. You see, when you said yes to Jesus, you're legally, you're there, you're saved, you're in the kingdom. Now we get this beautiful process of living up to the son or daughter of Jesus that we are. And that means sanctification. We're daily taking up our cross and following him. And that means every day we are saying, Father, I've sinned. I have sinned. And I want to I move forward. And that's a prayer that each of us needs to pray every single day. Not pretending to be sorry, not playing the blame game, not doing triangulation. Well, if, I would, if you wouldn't have said that, then I wouldn't have done this. We're not playing that game anymore. We own it and we say, I have sinned. Jesus... Answered them in Luke 5 Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's who we are. But we have a Savior that loves us so much. And repentance is this idea, again, it's way beyond just sorry or I apologize. Repentance means an actual turning of direction in a different way. God's called us to be His people, His sons and daughters. We get that privilege, and so we get to, every day, repent and move forward. He loves us way too much to let us still smell like like the pig pen. Right? Oh, that's good stuff. Oh, stop saying that you're not perfect. Would you stop saying that? Nobody is fooled by that. Yeah, it's weird how people use that still. Well, I'm not perfect, but, okay, what follows here? We know you're not perfect. I know you're not perfect. I am not perfect. we got to quit using that phrase. We are people who are sinners, and we need to own it, apologize, and seek to move forward. Seek forgiveness. Repent daily. James 5.16 says this, and this is powerful. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another so that you can wallow in it. Well, it doesn't say that. Confess your sins to one another so you can one-up each other on how bad you were. Confess your sins to one another. And what? Pray for each other that you may be healed. We're looking for healing, folks. Not just a laundry list of bad things we've done. But We're looking for healing from brokenness. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Every follower. This is an imperative, folks. Confession is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's part of who we are. So, I want you to be able to learn that phrase. I have sinned. David. We talked about David and Saul a little bit, but David, when he took the throne, he had a pretty good run. People would argue that that was the golden age of Israel. David had a great run, but he also made some big, bad mistakes. And one particular mistake, he slept with a woman that he shouldn't have slept with at a time when he should have been doing his work and he wasn't. And that unraveled very quickly. He almost lost his entire kingdom because of that act, betrayed really good friends Lots of people died from that action. But in Psalm 51, he owns it. And you can hear him say, Father, I have sinned. Listen to this. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He said, Father, I have sinned. Costly mistake. And the scriptures say that this is a a man after God's own heart. If you and I are seeking to be people after God's own heart, this is part of who we are. Repentance, the art of apology, this is part of our daily routine. It's basically saying, God, you're right, and I am wrong. And so I confess, I own it. This is the art of the apology. This is what it means to follow Jesus and to be a person of humble circumstances where we say God you're in charge and I am not. It's a daily thing. Start your prayers tomorrow morning. I don't know when you do your prayer time, but start it with Father, I have sinned. And maybe you need to list some of them. You may not remember all of them, but list them. Hey, I've sinned, but you're great God. And then you can go to worship worship him. Oh, the art of apology. We follow this and so I want you to say this together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I confess my sin. Father, I confess my sin. Those things that I I know I shouldn't have done, but I did, these things I I didn't do and I, I should have done. Father, we confess our sin. This is powerful. It's regular, it's honest. So I encourage you, I challenge you to learn that phrase, put that into your prayer life. Father, I have sinned. I confess my sin. Make it part of your prayer life. Would you do that this week? That's your challenge. And the thing is, God wants to move us forward. He loves us too much to have us still smelling like a pig pen. He wants us to confess and move forward. But the confession is owning it, being real. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and powerful. You're mighty. Thank you for this, this, this invitation that you give to us to come directly to you. Like that, that son and that father in that story. And your, your big bear hugs ready to, to, to hug us in. You love us so much. That you want us, yes, to own our sin, but to move forward, to repent and change direction. Father, I pray that everyone in this room, every Christ follower, would take that to heart in every prayer, Father, that we would start there, recognize that you're in charge and we're not. Father, thank you for the the, the beauty of, of apology and confession, but also for how you move us forward, you heal us from our brokenness. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.